What's up, everyone? This is episode number 30 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And I want to start by thanking those of you who listened to last week's Jordan Rookie episode and responded in some way on social media. And just a reminder, my Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. If you haven't jumped in on the conversation there, it's not too late. I encourage you to let your voice be heard. Okay, so normally this is the part of the show where I try and give some sort of update of the current happenings in the hobby. Well, this episode, this entire episode, really deals with different components of the hobby right now, so I'm ready to go. Today's itinerary includes just two main topics. Um, Number one, the influx of investment advice on YouTube and social media. And then number two, the recently revitalized no slab movement. Now, eventually I want to talk about the massive hype that's forming for De'Aaron Fox cards and Kobe Prism cards, because I think people should know about that. They should be aware of, of, you know, how to see when something like that is coming. But there's only so much I can fit in one episode, so I'll save that for another day. Let's jump in, though, to the first of our two main topics. Um, So last week I was the guest on a show called Let Me Get That Potograph. I want to thank Drew again for that opportunity. Um, On that episode, he asked me about the state of the basketball card hobby and all the money that's been flowing freely. And the economy is pretty good. And in turn, you know, it turns out the card market then is pretty good. And there, you know, people have attributed this to Gary V. Some have said that it's Zion. Some have said that it's a mixture of factors. You know, I agree that is probably a mix. Uh, Whatever it is, though, inevitably, with so much money being spent, there are going to be a lot of um, mistakes made over time. Whether it's cards that people buy that they don't really want that bad. You know, maybe it was the fear of missing out, which is FOMO. Um, Or maybe they made a mistake and invested in someone like Ben McLemore, and those cards didn't mature quite as they expected. Whatever the case may be, naturally this opens the door for a lot of investment advice because people are now in this thing to invest and then with that comes the people who claim to know you know they've got all the secrets or they've got all the advice um, this isn't something that we've dealt with in the past at least not in this capacity I want to offer a disclaimer here before I go any further I don't feel like I'm in competition with any other basketball content creators or card content creators in general Um, You know, this is a hobby for me. This is something I enjoy. I like talking to you guys every week. Yes, there's only so much time in the day, and at some point you'll have to prioritize shows or topics over others. I get that, but I'm not looking to tear these other shows down uh, in order to try and, you know, build my show up or anything like that. Um, But with that being said, I've watched some of these other shows, and I've seen some of these investor-focused accounts on social media, and it concerns me when I see them misleading people whether intentional or not. And there are times where I'm going to chime in because it can be hard to sometimes to recognize these kinds of trends if they aren't pointed out. I value the fact that you guys willingly choose to listen to me every week. I hope that's reflected in my research and my preparation for each episode. That probably doesn't mean I get everything 100% right all of the time, but if I don't know something I plan to talk about or if I need clarification, I'm trying to read books I'm reading, you know, 10-year-old forum posts, I'm emailing people, I'm texting people. I go to great lengths to try and get things right. 
I want to look out for you guys as collectors, as investors, you know, whatever group you fall in, whatever you classify yourself as, I want to try and help look after you. Okay. So then we need to ask the question now, what does this misinformation look like and how can you recognize it in order to stay clear? And in order to address these two questions, I'm going to use two real life situations from the last few months. I'm not going to name these two card investment accounts or content creators specifically. The names are not important. I just want you to be able to evaluate them by their actions instead. So I'm not here to to shun different groups of people. I'm here to inform you. And this can get very tricky because both of the accounts I'm going to talk about today have very, very polished visuals, nice looking videos, nice looking graphics. They have a regular content schedule. Um, One of the guys is very articulate. He seems like he probably knows his stuff in another industry, and he's trying to immediately cross that info over to the sports card world. And really, you know, as with most of these guys, they know just enough about cards to be dangerous. But their shortcomings, however, they don't hurt them as much as they do the people that are listening to them or following them. So... Example number one um, is an example where it looks like there was probably a questionable motive to begin with. Okay, so this was a group of two younger guys. When I say younger, they're in their 20s. They seem like they kind of have an entrepreneurial mindset. And from what I understand, they've been collecting a couple years. So anyway, they created this platform that they described as, quote, a digital media content platform aiming to help investors and collectors with the most pertinent information. Okay, whatever that means. Uh, And as part of this content, they created a membership program where for a monthly fee, they would provide insight on players from all different sports. Um, They also created another subscription where you could pay a separate monthly fee and they would send links for eBay auctions that they considered value listings. Okay, there's there. You were paying them to get eBay links. Well, after doing this for a while, um, some people on Instagram, they figured out that these guys were pumping some of their own cards. And a lot of guys were skeptical from the start, but eventually that information specifically came out. They were selling them on one of their mom's accounts. Um, I know Beckett has had a hot list in all their, you know, their past publications or a section for cards that are rising at the moment. Now, imagine if they told you that these cards were rising and then also tried to sell you said cards on eBay. That's kind of the situation that we had here. So this revelation came before the national. Um, These guys had quite the mess on their hands. They released this elaborate apology video and were more or less forced to change their business model going forward. I can't, I remember watching the video. Um, I wasn't impressed with it at all. I can't even find it now. You know, I suppose that's been scrubbed from the internet. Maybe not. Maybe I just can't find it. Um, They blocked or deleted all the comments on it when it was up. I know they decided to stop selling cards, um, but only after they took their inventory to the National and sold off what they could there. I saw them there. Oh, and by the way, Mom was there too, sitting in a chair on the side of the room. Um, As you can imagine, people were very critical of this business venture, especially when it was exposed. And one of the criticisms I saw of these two guys said, You know, people with knowledge will ignore them. People without knowledge might trust them once and get hit badly and then turn to them with negative feedback on social media. But uh, I feel for new collectors, though. You know, and while bumps in the road are good teaching tools that, you know, I, I hope people don't always have to take those bumps. 
You know, sometimes it's better to watch other people experience them or learn from the bumps that have been taken in the past. Um, I think this model that they created largely preyed on some of the newer and the younger collectors on Instagram. I didn't see a lot of the, or really any, of the experienced hobby people fall for this. Um, you might hear a lot of people talk about young Instagram. It's kind of the phrase that's been given for all of the um, younger people in the hobby that are on Instagram and how there's all types of kids entering the hobby. It's a very popular platform for them as well. Um, a lot of them, you know, a lot of them know their their numbers, at least what they see on eBay. A lot of them are very aggressive. A lot of them make mistakes, right? A lot of them, they're still figuring things out. And all of this kind of plays out before our eyes. Um, you know, unfortunately, I think there's a pretty substantial negative stigma that's been associated with young Instagram collectors of the hobby. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that um, we can kind of guide these people. I'll talk a little bit more about that. But um, another take I saw said that these two guys that made this account, you know, they're young entrepreneurs. They're trying to make some money from this hobby. People pump cards all the time. What they're doing isn't illegal. It isn't trimming or shilling. Well, it kind of is like shilling, though, because they were selling the cards, and that's the real key here. Uh, the fact of the matter is these guys created a business model. They're old enough to know better. They're taking you know whatever knowledge they have, and they're misleading the really young collectors. And these young collectors, they have to use whatever resources they know about, which sometimes will be the most public ones. It might be the loudest voices in the room. Instead, they need to make connections with some of the long-term collectors, um, so those guys can share their stories. But, you know, it's not always easy to find those guys. I think the hobby as a whole has failed recently to, to pool its knowledge and resources in a way that can reach these people. Um, or at least the people that I think are trying to do that and reach some of these younger people are, are really only doing so to profit off of it. I think we can do better. So uh, just a side note, if I could encourage you guys, um, some of the experienced listeners out there, if, if you do anything today, those of you that have been around a while, try to be one of those good influences on them. Um, understand that there's a learning curve. Share the sets you're knowledgeable about. Share the experiences that you have breaking boxes, but don't try and exploit these people. Okay, Be better than that. Um, all right, so going back now to our two questions, though. What does this misinformation look like, and how can you recognize it in order to stay clear? Um, in this example, you have people that are stockpiling certain cards and then suggesting that you rush into the market to buy them. You know, maybe they've made fancy charts to entice you in some way. Are they really putting their money where their mouth is or have they stocked up ahead of the rush and then they want you to enter the market? You know, some of you have seen Gary Vee's giant stash of Giannis rookies. You know, I'm sure he's still picking some up here and there, but he didn't start talking a lot about them until he had, until he had a nice little stash himself. Okay, it's just something to think about. You know, it's not always obvious when something like this is happening, but you just have to learn from the times in the past and realize that history often repeats itself. Okay, uh, the second example I want to cover also pertains to this influx of people that are giving basketball advice, uh, but based off of limited experience and incorrect data. And this person that I, I'm going to be using as an example, once again, I'm not going to use their name. Um, I don't think this person's trying to you know, sell off cards of people that he's advising you to buy. So I don't think he's trying to exploit people like that. I think his intentions are good. Um, but it, this example also shows that some of these guys, they you know they have good intentions. They have a really nice setup. Their visuals are good. The audio, audio quality is great. 
they're articulate, so everything at his face presents really well. But it's just that a lot of the information is bad. And it's no surprise that that's the hardest thing for newer collectors to decipher. Um, So I watched one run of videos this week where someone ran through a list of um, Prism Silver rookies that he thinks people should pick up, and then he advised them to hold on to them for three to five years. Okay, so if the basketball market stays strong over time, that, that might not be bad advice. But everything that he said after that indicated that he hasn't actually been in the market over the last three to five years. For example... Um, This guy used population reports to project print runs. His idea was that some of the players from each year that are popular now can help us know how many cards were printed then. So he used Giannis. Well, Giannis was not a sought-after card in 2013. He mentioned Embiid. Embiid was not sought-after for a few years. There was no mention of Wiggins at all. When it came to 2015, he mentioned Jokic. Well, Jokic is just now gaining steam. No one cared about him in 2015. It was all Carl Anthony Towns. The guy was huge then. Who, by the way, he wasn't mentioned at all in this episode. Um, Go back and watch old group breaks from these years. Now, breakers usually do a pretty good job at feigning excitement. You know, they know that they're selling their service just as much as the actual product. But they don't even know how to pronounce some of these names. And that tells you all you need to know. Okay. If they were a big name then, they would have figured it out. They would have had something to call them. Um, additionally, this guy, instead of trying to come up with these print runs you know, using his own faulty methods, he could have done a little bit of digging on Google or on the Facebook groups, and he would have seen that there's already, already been some pretty detailed distribution breakdowns that give us a good idea of these print runs. People have already analyzed this, and we feel like we have pretty accurate numbers I talked about this all on episode three. Um, Anyway, he decided that some of the early years had around 800 silvers, which is way too high. So this method just didn't work. But my point here is this. I'm not going to go into all the specific information, but those were just some of the signs to me that, um, you know, those were some of the red flags to me. But my point is this. Here you have someone that's advising you to buy and hold over a certain time cycle. In this case, it was three to five years. But their analysis of the last three to five years all but proves that they haven't been around long enough to see any sort of similar cycle play out. Now, maybe what they're saying for the future turns out to be true and they're right. You know, we won't know until it happens, but take it with a grain of salt. It all goes back to the philosophy of question everything. And I actually messaged this person privately. You know, once again, I have nothing against them. I wish him well. Um, I shared a lot of the same concerns that I voiced just now. I never got a personal reply, but he loosely discussed it in his follow-up episode, and the gist of the response was, yeah, my methods for finding the print runs were off and I missed some key players, but my points about silver prism cards remain the same. Well, I still have a problem with that. Okay, The problem is when you publish something and it's chocked full of faulty information, we, the listeners, the content consumers have to sift through it to differentiate what's good and what's not. Not only that, but the content is now easily accessible. It's there for the future, but it's still wrong. And some of that misinformation could be perpetuated. Because you see, anyone that studied history knows that sometimes history isn't as much what actually happened as it is how those events were later chronicled, or in this case, posted online, 
on YouTube, on social media, a lot of our primary source information on hobby history is fading away. Um, old forums die. They get new servers. You know, their servers crash, right? Their posts aren't archived anymore. The links become inactive. And all we're left with will be the newest hobby content. And like I said earlier, good intentions and enthusiasm don't always produce correct content. So be careful. Listen, you don't have to be an expert in something to talk about it or to create content about it. But if you're positioning yourself to give people advice, either figure it out or talk about something else. That's not fair to the people that are consuming your content. Okay, so going back then to my original questions, what does this misinformation look like and how can you recognize it in order to steer clear? Like I said earlier, this example is a little bit tougher. Overall, the content's very polished but a lot of it's wrong, and this is where collector dialogue is crucial. If you want to vet something out, don't turn to the YouTube comments for the content itself. Get away from that platform to discuss it. Find a seasoned collector on social media that's open to you asking questions. Pose questions on Twitter. Read some of the hobby discussions on like the blowout forums. Use Google. Be very cautious of a lot of the information that's circulating around in Facebook groups right now. Okay, so you can ask these questions, but just know that there's a lot of misinformation even there you have to sift through. So it's going to require a combination of some of those things. The more you stick around, though, and the more that you examine these situations, the easier they are to pick out. That's what I said in my last example, too. Don't rush into anything and be patient. Okay, so those were just two examples. Um, there are some other new investor accounts out there. One of them so goofy, honestly, I can't even figure out if it's a meme or if it's an actual platform. So needless to say, um, these are strange times for the hobby. But this all transitions well to my second topic for the day because incidentally enough, all of these investor types seem pretty fixated on graded cards. Look, I get it. Grading's really popular and, and there's something appealing about making your own judgment on a card's condition sending it in and having that opinion validated by an authority in the industry. You know, it's or maybe it's fun to research a player, buy their cards and see if they go up in value. It's like our own little version of the stock market. And I've talked about that before. And even with all of the controversy and the incompetence that comes with these third party authenticators, they're probably more popular than ever right now because people have really bought into this model. So that makes a recent trend on social media all the more intriguing. Over the course of the last week, a small group of collectors have been cracking cards out of graded slabs and posting pictures of the carnage on Instagram with the hashtag NoSlabMovement. And a couple of you have messaged me to ask what I think about this. Someone even said, you know, I bet you're loving this whole NoSlab thing. Well, as much as I've harped on grading companies over the last couple months, I do want to emphasize again that I'm not anti-grading. Um, I'm not here to encourage people to crack their cards out of the slab. That's not what I'm here to do. I don't have an agenda. But uh, And in fact, there are certain cards that I'm in the market for um, that having them slabbed often gives me a feeling of assurance, even if the grade's low. And I'm not really as much into some of the rare 90s stuff that some of you guys are that's faked a lot. Uh, for me, it's more of the vintage stuff. And that's kind of what I like about this new initiative, though. It's It's purposeful. Okay, because cracking cards out of slabs is nothing new. This practice has been around almost as long as the slabs themselves. And I'm not going to talk a lot about how to do this. 
Uh, although someone on Blowout said you can do it with your bare hands. I don't know what kind of bionic hands this person has, but I definitely wouldn't suggest that. If you want to know more about the different methods and different slabs, um, our friend Jake Roy, aka 90s B-Ball Cards on YouTube, he had a video about that earlier in the summer. It's a good re resource. You actually get to see him doing it on video. You know, a lot of people post pictures and the pictures are good, but you see him doing it on video. So it's just kind of nice to see someone else go through that experience. But look at multiple sources, see what your options are. Um, but anyway, this no slab movement, the guy that's really spearheaded this thing this week is a, a Nuggets collector named Ryan. So shout out to all of my fellow team collectors out there. Uh, you might know him better if you're on social media or blow out as MindCycle underscore cards. And he did a pretty good job of mapping this thing out, so I want to start off by reading from one of his posts. And he said, uh, Grading certainly has its place and is a worthwhile addition to the hobby. What I find a bit hilarious is grading stuff like Prism that is all but guaranteed a mint grade 9 or higher. Don't get me wrong, if that's what you're into, more power to you. I just see it as a bit of an absurd trend in the hobby right now, and the no slab movement is meant to be a counter movement to that. At the end of the day, though, collect what you like no matter what it is. Crack a few slabs while you're at it. Okay, so when you stop and read what he's saying, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, but a lot of people aren't doing that because it's, you know, they say a picture's worth a thousand words. Sometimes they see the visuals first. Um, and they've, they've seen grading build up so much over the last few years that when they see the visual of broken slabs and cards and top loaders or one touches, the, the whole thing's a little jarring for them. And it, but it started a lot of healthy dialogue, though, and, and I like that. And uh, really in this post or in this whole movement, there's, there's two components that I think he's addressing. Number one, as he already alluded to here, there are a lot of relatively common cards and slabs that are being elevated to something that they're probably not. And number two, if you collect what you like and personally value it more and like it more out of a slab or in a top loader binder, the rest of the collecting or the investing community shouldn't dictate how you enjoy your cards. Um, but like I said, this was really tough for a lot of people to grasp. Um, to their credit, though, most of them are either commenting or asking questions. So it's not, you know, there's not a lot of trolling happening here. I think this is actually healthy for the hobby. I want to run through a few of the talking points real quick. Um, one person, though, did, you know, they started off, there was a little bit of sarcasm. There was some skepticism. One person commented, crack a graded slab and put it immediately in another slab. Brilliant. I'm assuming these are all PC. Otherwise, you just burn up a lot of value. Well, my initial thought was that that was kind of simplifying things. You know, a top loader or a binder or a one-touch are all way more accessible than a graded slab. Some people like to be able to hold the actual card in their hand, or if it's a memorabilia card, they like to um, be able to feel the piece of memorabilia. Um, but I liked Ryan's response, though. He said, I think cards having value is great and it's why we have a hobby in the first place, but enjoying my cards is more important to me than what they're worth. If I do decide to ever sell, I'm okay with the values, that the value has dropped a bit from cracking. That's part of the risk, I guess. I think the Murray, which he's referring to, a, a Jamal Murray card that he cracked, um, looks way better in a one-touch, which is why I cracked it. The enjoyment I get from looking at it was meant um, was meant to be outweighs any kind of monetary gain I might be missing out on down the road. Now, to add some of my thoughts to that, 
You know, if you're buying a card because you like the look of it, and it's a relatively common card, there are a lot of copies to choose from. A lot of times the price differential between a 9 and a 10 is insane. And if you really want a card that, um, if you want it slab for protection purposes or continuity, you know, buy a 9 with good eye appeal, save yourself some money. If you've been around the hobby long enough, you've probably heard the phrase, buy the card, not the grade. Um, For some reason, there's a negative stigma around some of these lower grades. And when I say lower, I mean 8s and 8.5s. And some of them really don't look horrible, but people have been trained to hate the number, and the whole thing is goofy. So anyway, one of the first cards that Ryan cracked out of the slab, like I said, was a Jamal Murray. It was a rookie signatures gold. Um, that had been graded a BGS 9.5. Well, if people weren't triggered enough after that, another poster joined in soon and cracked a Jalen Brown Optic Gold rookie that was a BGS 10. And at this point, I thought some heads were going to explode. Some people were getting really worked up over this. And it all goes back to that investor mindset. Why are you buying cards? Um, But still, you know, uh, surprisingly, there were a lot of people that jumped in that were you know, happy to see this. And a couple people tried to defend this poster for cracking cards. Um, you know, they pointed out that this is a hobby, but then someone else chimed in, well, most hobbyists care about the value of their collection, whether sports cards, trains, toys, etc. Okay. Um, now, I would say to that, I've collected a lot of stuff over the years. I probably lost money in just about every one of those hobbies, and I'm okay with that because there's an experience cost, because it makes me happy. Um, You know, how many of you have ever paid for a nice steak dinner? Well, couldn't you get full off of Taco Bell's value menu instead? Uh, Three items with tax might cost you $3.21. The answer to that is yes, it's very filling and it's delicious. Um, But some of you, when you buy that steak dinner, you're probably, you're paying for the experience. You're paying for the... Um, experience to go out and spend time maybe with another person. Um, In your mind, you've already justified a lot of the experience cost in some of the other segments of your life like this. And, you know, this doesn't have to be any different. And as someone else pointed out, he's just breaking it out of the aftermarket case. He could easily resubmit down the road if he wanted to. Uh, And then someone else closed and they said, there's no right way to enjoy this hobby. I think that's true too. Uh, Another really good question that I saw asked several times was, why don't you just buy the card raw instead? That's a really good question. Um, You know, especially if tins carry such a premium. We've talked about that. It wasn't too long ago in this episode that I encourage you guys to buy nice looking nines. The general consensus though seemed to be that if the raw version of a PC card was available, most of the people that are cracking these out would purchase that instead. But um, there are instances where slab copies cost about as much as their raw counterparts. Um, Or sometimes, you know, if it's a card number to 10 or whatever, there aren't that many copies to begin with and and people grade them from the get-go. So if you want one, you might have to pony up and pay for one with a high grade anyway. All right, um, so the last major thing, you know, there's a lot of good conversation here. The last major thing I gathered from this conversation, though, is that some people really like slabs. And I remember when I got my first graded card in a random lot that I bought online years ago. Um, there's just something about that protective case that makes it feel special, right? There's something oddly satisfying about the way PSA cases kind of rest on top of one another. 
Uh, I know that sounds strange. It's, it's just weird. It's something about that. Uh, you know, seeing the name of the player in the set on the label makes everything seem a little more official. There's something to be said for continuity and uniformity. And if I take a picture of a group of cards together and some are graded and some aren't, well, you know, something feels off. And there are a lot of other people that share some of these same sentiments. In fact, um, there's a blowout thread about this movement and the third post even states, I think grading is a scam, but I like the slabs. And you know, I've heard this a lot in the past too, especially when some of the grading scandals have have sort of emerged and re-emerged. And it's got me thinking, you know, I know there's already a service where you can send cards in and just get them labeled as authentic. Uh, Usually people that have done that, though, they only do it if they're ashamed of what the card would grade or if they think the card has been altered or something. Um, So there's kind of a bad stigma associated with that. I don't think that this service is all that quick either. I haven't looked at the times lately. Um, But if this is true, that a lot of people just really like slabs, it's got me thinking. Couldn't PSA or one of these companies just create a rapid turnaround service that just slabs cards with a similar looking label? You know, I know this idea is simple right now and they'd have to be very strict about what they accept. You know, no super high value cards, nothing that really needs an authentication service. Um, But if they could just do slabbing, just slab and name the card, right? Put it in a similar looking label. If they could do that, Some of these collectors could get the continuity, they could get the protection, they could get the prestige of these holders that they seem to want these for. Um, You know, there is a horrible grading company in Florida called GMA. Sorry, GMA, but you're bad. Um, I use the term grading company loosely here, but they charge $350 per card to grade. Uh, Now, the grade's worthless if it's in their holder. You're really just paying for a slab. But so anyway, we know that the slabs are cheap. We know that they can be cheap, right? So let's say that PSA doubles that cost though. Let's say that they charge $7 a piece to slab these cards plus shipping. Um, This is a total guess. I'm guessing that they buy their holders in bulk and I figure they get them well below 50 cents a piece. That's just a guess. I don't know. If the service picks up, you know, have a couple employees crank these out. You know, maybe these are graders in training that have to pay their dues or, you know, whatever. Put some lower level employees there. Boom. Profit. Right? You keep some of the customers that have shied away from grading. It matches the other cards that you've already slabbed. It's a win-win. You know, who knows? It's just an idea. Like I said, they'd have to figure out the logistics. I know there's some loopholes. They'd have to tie up some of the loose ends. But it's just something I've been thinking about and it's worth a thought. Okay. Well, uh, there you have it. Those are some of my thoughts on the two topics I talked about today, the investment advice accounts that have sprung up recently, and then the emerging no slab movement on Instagram. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. And now it's your turn. I'd love to hear some of your follow-up on this episode. Once again, you can find me on my Instagram, which is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. You know, maybe you've done something similar to the no slab movement. Let me know. I'd love to hear you guys weigh in. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or Google Play. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.